to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Today's episode features Senior Pastor Heath Bauer, who brings message from the Faith Foundation series. And in this series, we're looking at church governance. Today, we're looking at the role of the pastor. Our journey starts in 1 Peter 5. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, toward the end of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. You know, when you talk to the uninformed and you introduce yourself to somebody out there in the community, and they, you know, as it is with men, you often ask, what do you do for a living? And I have the chance to tell people, well, I'm a pastor of Unity Baptist Church. And you know what you'll usually hear from people, and they think they're really funny when they say it, well, it must be nice to only work one day a week, right? Am I right? You know? Because sometimes people think that. You come here on Sunday morning, and evidently people think we just show up and say, I wonder what we're talking about today. How did this PowerPoint get put together? Wow. So people have an uninformed view as to what pastors do. Have you ever thought about what does a pastor do with all that time in the week? What does a pastor do indeed? Well, for one thing, obviously, Part of our job description is to preach the Word of God. But do you know what it takes just to go into a single sermon? There are hours of prayer that a pastor puts in as he's praying for each one of you by name, as he prays about, God, what is the direction that you're wanting to lead this church? What do you want to hear uh, in, the, in the house of God on Sunday? What do you want your children to hear? And so you're praying about that. There's hours that go into that. There are hours of time that go into the study. You figure out what God wants you to preach, but then it's time to study. And so you've got all these books that you got in Bible college you were never sure if you were going to use, and you, you end up do using it, and you're studying and studying, and then it comes time to write the sermon. There's several, uh, there's, there's more hours involved with that. And then once I've written out this, the message, I actually go back through, and, I, and it, looks like a, it looks like a rainbow. If you ever see it, every color means something. And so I go through, and I mark it up, and I'm highlighting things. And believe it or not, I take a Sharpie, and I cross out parts of the sermons. I actually do shorten my sermons. It's true. I actually do that. And all of this, and then I go through, and I actually go through, and I read through, and I talk through, and I practice preaching through the sermons long before it ever gets to you. So there is an average of about 10 to 12 hours per sermon that goes into just getting to where we are on Sunday morning, making sure we're rightly dividing the word of truth and giving it to you in a faithful way. Now, last week, I preached four times. That's 40 to 48 hours worth of work right there. What does a pastor do during the week? That's just a segment of what a pastor does. And then there's this morning. I already taught uh, for an hour this morning to our new members class. And so there's tremendous work just in the preaching and the teaching and the things that you do. But there's also deacons meetings that I'm a part of. There's local and state associational meetings that I'm a part of. I meet with other pastors. I meet with you individually for counseling. And then there's preparation for counseling and things. I meet with the staff. Do you know that the staff meets every Monday from 1230, uh, sometimes till 430? <laughs> sometimes, you know, anywhere from two to four hours, the staff will meet together and we will pray. 
and we will focus on what is God doing in your department? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What do we need to focus on? And so there's hours going into strategic leadership and direction. How do we better engage our community with the gospel? And there's so much more that I could say. Um, I've got a little video here about what it looks like to be a pastor. And oh, there we are. You actually thought I was going to put a pastor up there, didn't you? No, that's how it feels. That's a pastor's life sometimes. And you're just running, you're running. There's so many things to do in, in ministry. And he's just going to keep on going. You can advance to the next slide if you want. We, got, we already know how that video ends. Um, that's how it feels in ministry. You're running as fast as you can. And eventually all the tasks that are involved with being a pastor can catch up to you. And it can just throw you right off the wheel. And that's, that's the pastoral ministry in a nutshell. So I, as a pastor, there's a heart to do far more than any human can ever do in a week. So sadly, I can't be part of every class. I can't go to every party. I can't be part of every meeting that goes on in the church. I can't be at the head and leading the charge for every uh, social event and Awanas and children's churches and, and things like that. As much as I want to be there, we can't. But you see, that's why the body, uh, the church is called the body of Christ. I'm one body part and that's it. You guys are the other body parts. That's how all the rest of the ministry gets done. And so as a church grows, it gets to the point a pastor can't even visit everybody. But that's why we have deacons. They are partners in the ministry, and they make sure that there's nobody who slips through the cracks and who is ignored and who isn't vitally connected to the church. Or if you're sick, that they aren't calling you saying, hey, how are you doing? Who may not go and visit you in the hospital and things like that. All of us perform a role in the body of the Christ, and a pastor is just one of those roles. Now, the thing is, is what is a pastor's actual job description? Now, I had one here as I came into the church. The kind of church just kind of showed me, well, here's what the previous pastors have been doing, so here's a, here's a job description. And I understand the need for a job description. You know, you kind of have to have an idea of here's some things that you need to do. I want to say a couple things about a pastor's job description. One if you find yourself having to hold the pastor to a document that says job description and you're having to tap on it and saying this is what you need to be doing because he's lazy, you hired the wrong guy. A pastor ought to be the kind of guy where you're like, whoa, 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 you're doing too much. You're going too fast. You're, you're, you're trying to accomplish too much. You actually need to rest and, and take a break. A pastor needs to be so driven in his calling of God that job description or no, he is just blazing trails. Okay, that's, that's what that call looks like. Remember last week we talked, what did it mean? What are the two terms he used? Aspire and desire, which means to reach out, to, to apprehend, to take hold of. He wants something so badly that he's reaching out for it. And so if he's bound to a job description because he's lazy, friends, you, you need to start getting that pastoral search committee together again. But the second thing I'll say about a pastor's job description, it needs to be a work in progress. And why is that? Because as a church grows, the pastor's job is going to have to change somewhat. You're going to have more staff. You're going to have more things to do. And the pastor can't always do all the things that he was doing. And so it needs to be a work in progress. Every pastor, too, you'll probably notice they have different personalities. They have different spiritual gifting, things that they're particularly gifted and good at. That job description needs to reflect that as you grow. And so it needs to be a work in progress. Now, when we're talking about pastoral job description, we, uh, the best, most concise place I can think of to take you is in 1 Peter in chapter 5. And hopefully you've found your way there already. 1 Peter chapter 5 is what God says a job description is. 
okay? So it's not simply a man-created document so that the pastor comes and he needs to just please all the whims of man, like Paul said in Galatians 1. If I were to be a servant of man, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. So you cannot serve God and man. You have to figure out what does God say your job description is? And you need to follow closely to the word of God. And that's what we're trying to do. So we're going to look at 1 Peter 5. And we're going to see three different terms that are used for the same office. A pastor is called three things. And these three things, these terms, tell you what a pastor should be doing because they mean something. A pastor is first called an elder. He is also called a pastor or shepherd. And he is called an overseer. Now, when, you, when we read this together in 1 Peter 5, I want you to look for those three terms, elder, pastor, or shepherd, and overseer. See if you can see these three things described. So here we go, 1 Peter 5. So Peter says, I exhort or encourage the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to your elders, or to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the first one there, I mean, you probably saw it there. Peter is talking to a group of people in the church that are called the elders of the church. Is that just the old people of the church? It's not. Now, that's what that term literally means is the aged ones. But aged in what way? Not just simply that they're older or have white hair coming in, okay? It's we're talking about those who are aged in the faith. Is it possible to be a really old person and still not mature in the faith? It's possible, okay? It's possible to be an old person and not even a believer yet. Okay, so we're not just simply talking about one who is aged in the church. We're talking about someone who is aged in the faith. They are an elder in the faith. I've been a believer for 43 years now. And I've been in full-time ministry for 26 years. And so a, an elder is somebody who is tested. You've observed their life. They're not just a brand new believer. Remember in the qualifications of a pastor, it just says it warns us not to lay hands on any man quickly, to ordain them, to set them apart. Not a new believer. So uh, an elder is somebody whose faith has been tested. They've been through the difficult times of life, and they still continue to follow Jesus. You can, you can observe in their life. Their life is an example to others. And that's what verse 3 is implying here. He says that such a person is to have a life worthy of following. He says, be an example to the flock. Now, when we talk about elder, we're primarily looking at the qualifications, what this guy is like on the inside. What is their heart like? And we talked about that at great length the last week we were here. We talked about the, the overarching ideas that a pastor must be what? above reproach, not able to be grasped in doing wrongdoing, that he's not living hypocritically, that he is a certain, that he is an example to the flock in many different areas of life. Some of those areas of life, he can't be a drunkard. He can't be a fighter. Why? Because you're not supposed to be a drunkard and you're not supposed to be a fighter. 
He's supposed to be a peacemaker, not quarrelsome. Why? Because you're not supposed to be quarrelsome. Likewise, he is supposed to rule his own family well. You know, he's supposed to have a close relationship, intimate relationship with his wife. Why? Because you're supposed to have an intimate relationship with your mate. And you should be able to look at the elders of the church and say, if only the rest of the church had families like them. They're not perfect. You know, Amber will tell you. you know, ours isn't a perfect home, but it is healthy that you have healthy relationships with your children in all ways that the elders are to serve as examples to the flock. You can look at their life and the qualifications that they fill and say, we need more people like living like that in the church. And so that's what an elder is. He is an example to the flock. They are above reproach. Now, in the New Testament, if we read throughout the New Testament, we'll see that the churches all had a plurality of elders meaning simply there's more than one elder in the church. Now, a lot of times we grow up in church, there's only one person serving in that elder role, in the pastor role. And I get it. There's no one wrong way or right way to do church governance. But if you're just talking about what the New Testament says, there was always a plurality of elders who were within a church. And so in 1 Peter 5, right here, we just read, who is Peter writing to? Go ahead and look back at 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. So I exhort thee, elders. Is that singular or plural? That's plural in my Bible. It better be plural in your Bible too. He, so there was an understanding as Peter is writing to these churches that there are multiple elders within the church serving in that role. And uh, Acts 14, 23, when Paul planted a church in Lystra, he says the same thing. He says, and when they had appointed elders, plural. Do we have the scripture on that? There we go. When he had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, there's fasting again, we'll get to that eventually. We don't like to talk about fasting too much, but it's in the Bible. They committed themselves to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus, chapter 1, we have another scripture for you. Paul commanded Titus. Remember, Titus was a... a protege, if you will, of, of Paul. He was someone that Paul was developing into being someone like him. He mentored him in the ministry. And Paul would launch these guys off and have them enter into ministry. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, he said, this is why I left you in Crete. He says, so that you might put what remained into order. How do you organize the church? How do you put the church into order? You ordain elders, plural, in every church. He says, uh, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, what does that look like? Above reproach, the husband of one wife. Sounds like 1 Timothy 3, and it's supposed to. It's the qualifications of an elder or a pastor or an overseer. Okay, they are to be an example to the flock. And the final verse I'm going to show you here is in Acts chapter 20. And that's in verse 17 and 28. Now, before I read this one, you're going to see, once again, all three parts of the pastoral role that are mentioned here. You're going to see him talk about them being an elder. You're going to see them talk about shepherding. You're going to see them overseeing. So he says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. What's that? That's shepherding. He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you, what's your Bible say? Overseers. So there's the overseer part. He says, and to 
care for the church of God. What is that again? That's shepherding, which he obtained with his own blood. And so I'm sharing these several passages with you to show you that whatever we do here in America in the church, in the Bible, the churches had multiple people serving in this role that we call elder. And that elder included several different aspects to it. Elder, pastor, overseer. Now, later in our text this morning, what does it say in verse 5? Look at that. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So who are the younger he's talking about here? Now, in context... Remember, context controls the meaning. The verses that come before and immediately after, you see the flow of things here. It gives you the idea of what he's talking about. Normally, when we say younger and elder, we think age, don't we? But in this passage, who's he talking about? Elders of the church. So when he talks about those who are younger, he's talking about those not serving in an elder role. Who are the elders? He just described. The elder is, are those who are serving in this pastoral role within the church. And what does he tell those who are not serving as elders to be with the elders? He says, be subject to the elders, those who are serving as elders within the church. Right now, our church has three elders. I don't know if you know that or not. Biblically speaking, we have three elders. Myself is one. Brad is another. Theron is another. Right now, that's what we have. But he says, be subject to. Now, this is a word that you've seen before if you've ever studied marriage. You go to Ephesians chapter 5, what does it say? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. It's that Greek word hupotasso, which means to voluntarily line yourself up under someone for the purpose of organization, for the purpose of order. You never see the, the need for that more pronounced than in the military. Just this weekend, uh, I'm going to brag on my nephew here. I have a nephew, Harrison McLean, lives out in Washington State, and he just finished whatever you do in the military to become a, a Black Hawk, not pilot, but a mechanic. And so, but he just entered the military. And so he's low on the totem pole. I don't know what, if he, what he is. Does that make him a private or does that make him something else? But he's, he's brand new. Now, that doesn't mean he's a little guy. My, my nephew, my little nephew, Harrison McLean, is like, I want to say he's, what is he, six, eight, six, nine? I mean, he's enormous. His nickname in the military, they call him Baby Giraffe. I love it. Um, anyway, he's, he's this great guy, though. He's this big, hulking guy. This really, really just, and he has people that he voluntarily lines himself up underneath. He hupotassos. He lines up under for the purpose of order. Because if we didn't have ranks, insignias, and patches in the military, we wouldn't know who to salute and who to follow. Now, that doesn't mean that the pe his supervisor, his drill sergeant, it doesn't mean that he's bigger or stronger than Harrison. There's not too many people bigger than him. It doesn't mean that they're smarter. It doesn't mean that they're faster. It just means that there's a certain order to the military. If you want the military to work together, there has to be that order. In the church, there is a similar order. And the Bible says those who are not serving as elders, the younger, are to be subject, to willingly line yourself up under, to follow the direction and the leadership of the church. That there is a vision that God has put people in these positions that we are to to support, encourage, and to follow that leadership and direction. Now, it's clear in the New Testament, by the way, that there were, in the New Testament, there were both paid and unpaid, or we may call them lay elders in the New Testament. How do we know that? Because in 
1 Timothy chapter 5, he specifically describes this scenario. He says, let the elders, again, plural, let the elders who rule well, again, that's the oversight, that's the leadership that these elders do. He says, let them be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, so he's talking about elders being worthy of double honor. What's he talking about? Is it just means that we honor them, esteem them more highly, especially those that labor in the word and they do a good job? Well, certainly there's an honor due to the position of anybody who holds the position of elder. They've done a lot of work. They have to live a very, uh, very organized life, a very holy life before God. So there's a certain honor that's due to the position. But here, what's this double honor? I believe it refers to honor that you give the position and honorarium that you pay those fellows. Now, what makes you think that other honor is talking about money? Here we go. I'm going to say it again. Context. What's the context of double honor? He says, the next word you see is for. Now, in hermeneutics, the study of how to interpret the Bible, that word for means that what I just said, double honor, is described by what I'm about to say. Double honor. For, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Where did we hear that before? It was last week, if you were here. And you heard me talk about 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. There it is. For is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for us, he says? If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? He's talking about you're supposed to pay your pastors and take care of their needs. Now, if there are some who are serving as elders in the church who are both lay and paid elders, but they're especially gifted and they desire to serve in a full-time way, the church is to give them double honor, if you will, to if they have the means to do so, to free them up from their full-time job so that they can exclusively serve God in a full-time way, especially if they're gifted in the teaching and communication of God's word. So in the New Testament, that's the example that we see. You had those who were serving as elder, but they weren't paid. You had those who were serving as elder who had double honor. They were gifted in the preaching and teaching of the word, and we took their full-time job away and said, buddy, you're so good at this. We need, Brad, we need you to be doing this full-time, okay? Theron, we need you to be doing this full-time. And that's what you of a church has done. But in the New Testament, we had those who were serving as elder who were paid and unpaid. So that's what an elder is. Primarily, he's an example, and there is a plurality of elders within the church. The second term we're going to see here is the one that you probably think of most when you think of a pastor. It's what you typically call the pastor. You call him pastor. The word pastor, poimen, just means a shepherd. It's someone who shepherds the flock of God. Okay? And that's what verse 2 in 1 Peter 5 says. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The word shepherd is both a title and a description. Someone who raises sheep is called a shepherd. Well, what does a shepherd do? He shepherds. <laughs> he shepherds this flock. He makes sure that there are certain things that he does for them to care for their, their physical well-being. Now, often when I talk about a pastor and what a pastor does, I'll go to Psalm chapter 23 because the Bible describes God as our chief shepherd, right? He is our, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he goes on to describe what God does as a shepherd. To me, that serves as a fine example for what does a shepherd do within the church? Now, we don't have time to preach a whole other sermon on Psalm 23. You're welcome. But in the meantime, there's a couple of things I want to point out. 
the two primary things that a shepherd does for the sheep is, one, he feeds the sheep. That's what we're doing right now. We're giving you the word of God. But also he protects the sheep. And I think that's also mirrored in Psalm chapter 23. You feed the sheep. What does the Lord say about his sheep? He leads me to where? What kind of places? Yeah, green pastures and still waters, right? He's, he's caring for the physical needs of the sheep. Now notice, even when it says how God shepherds us, it doesn't say, and God cradled me in his arms and stuffed grass down my mouth. He didn't feed me like that. What did he do? He led me to the green pastures and says, here it is, time to eat, okay? And so sometimes there's a misunderstanding that as a pastor, I am to give you all the spiritual food that you're ever gonna need. Can I tell you right now, if the only food you get is Sunday morning and Sunday night, maybe a Wednesday night, you're going to be a starving little sheep. You're going to be anemic. Because a good shepherd, certainly, there will be times that, that we process the Bible for you. We teach the Bible. Why? Because in the preaching, it should be an example of how you study the Bible yourself. We read the Word. We explain the Word. We apply the Word. Isn't that what you do in your Bible study? You read the Word. You interpret it well and you apply the word of God to your life. And so we give you an example to follow, but after that, it's on to you. We lead you to green pastures. We show you the Bible. We teach you how to interpret it and to study it well. But then we're fully hoping and expecting that you learn how to feed yourself on a Sunday morning and on Sunday night and Monday and Tuesday on your lunch break, that you're able to feed yourself. I mean, it's what we do with our physical children, isn't it? I mean, uh, when they're little babies and they, they can't really feed themselves, they don't know how to process food, they don't have money, you get the kid, and what do you do? You strap him in a high chair because he doesn't even know what's good for him. So you tie that little, you know, Tasmanian devil, you tie him down into that high chair, and then you get a rubber-tipped spoon so it doesn't accidentally hurt his mouth, and he bites down on it. And you get that strained peas, and, you know, and, and to make them want to eat strained peas, you got to make airplane noises, right? Come on, it's coming in, circling in, and you, you stuff it in, they spit it out, and you put it back in, they spit it out, and you put it back in, and this is what you do with babies. Any of you still doing that with your 14-year-old? You strapping them down to a high chair, you're getting the strained peas out again, well, here we go, Johnny. How was track this week? Get open wide, near, you know, and you're, you're feeding the kid his strained peas, and, you know, you're like, that's, that's really insulting. You know, there's, a 14-year-old should be able to feed themselves, and they should. But it's the same thing with a, in a church. You don't need someone just, you know, zooming the word of God on a rubber-tipped spoon to you every Sunday. This is, some, this is a book that you can learn and understand on your own. And that's one of my chief goals as a pastor is to help you fall in love with God through the knowledge of his Bible to teach you how to rightly divide, how to interpret, to come to God's intended meaning in the scripture so that you can feed yourself so that hopefully you're not just feeding yourself, but what? You're feeding others. You're feeding your children. You're, maybe you're teaching a class here at church. Maybe you're in a D group and you're discipling somebody else. So that is God's intention, that we grow up to feed ourselves. Old-timey church, sometimes we had discipleship backwards. We thought discipleship was, well, I have to give you everything that you need. Well, to do that, we need a bunch of services, don't we? We need Sunday morning, Sunday school, church training, Sunday night, Wednesday night, as many services as we can pack in because we know that you aren't going to study the Bible on your own. So we're just going to do all of the work for you. Friends, that was never a biblical structure, can I just tell you? The pastor is to lead you like God, guide you to the green pastures to help you 
learn how to study the Bible for yourself to help you become a fully strong, mature believer in Christ. So a pastor, he does feed the sheep, but also he has to protect the sheep, doesn't he? Can sheep get into trouble? Oh, sheep get into trouble all the time. I got, some, uh, I got a video here of a pastor doing some work. You got another video for me, brother? Let's roll tape. Here we are. Go ahead and hit play on that. Here's a pastor hard at work as he is working with his sheep, and we'll see if it plays. If not, I may just have to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there we are. Oh, listen to that. Oh, that's just sad. At least he's out there, right? And there we are. Friends, that's pastoral ministry. Any questions? And that's what it's like. Okay, you can go ahead and stop the tape and roll. It was just really sad watching that poor sheep there. Uh, and that's, that's how life and that's how pastoral ministry can feel. That, that sheep can get into trouble. And sometimes it's because outside predators want to eat sheep. And sometimes it's just the sheep are getting themselves into trouble. I don't know if you knew this or not. My Sunday school teacher is a little kid. He raised sheep. And something we learned is that sheep have really poor eyesight. They cannot see the danger that's afar off. That they'll walk right up into a pack of wolves. Hey, what's up? You know, they, they just don't realize the danger that they're in. And so sheep will get into troubles themselves, and they'll get into trouble because people want to hunt them down. That's why if you read Psalm 23, what is it that comforts the believer? God is carrying two things, figuratively speaking. What is it? A rod and a staff, they comfort me. Now, rods and staves, staffs, staffs? Okay. The rod and the staff, they have two different purposes, right? The rod, don't, don't think like a dowel rod, like, you know, bow staff. Think like a club, a, a cudgel. <clears throat> And he beats that down on the heads of those things which want to damage the sheep. Because everything wants to eat a sheep. Bears want to eat sheep. Lions want to eat sheep. Most often wolves, they want to come in. They want to pick off a sheep or two and carry it off and eat them. And so a shepherd carries around a club and he will crush. He'll get, you know, that, that wolf has a bite on one of the legs and he'll crush that wolf right on the head and he will let go of that sheep. I assure you. But that's not the only trouble that they have. You know, they, you have, there's, these wolves are everywhere. And so, by the way, a, sh a shepherd, they have to call out where that trouble is. And they've got, to, they've got to fend off these wolves that want to devour you. And Jesus says that they, I am sending you into this world, how? As sheep amongst wolves. There are, what are the wolves in the world, biblically speaking? What's a wolf? They are false teachers. Those who take the word of God and they teach you a false gospel or they take the word of God and they teach it for wrong motives. Maybe it's, uh, you know, for, you know, they're trying to get women or they're trying to get money or they're trying to get something from the church that they're not supposed to. And so there are false teachers and sometimes a pastor has to call out false teaching to protect the flock from things because maybe you don't see what we've seen. You don't see the dangers of the things that we've seen. And so you've got to call it out, and sometimes by name. And sometimes the sheep will look at the pastor and go, boy, that's just, that's insensitive. Why'd you call out that false teacher by name? That's rude. Do we, do we sometimes have to call out dangers by name? We do, and it happened in the Bible. Remember, Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. That's in the Bible. Hate to be Alexander the coppersmith. He was causing Paul trouble. He's going to be in the Bible forever. Uh, Paul says, of such were Hymenaeus and Alexander, blah, 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 and, he, and he lists out the dangers that we're facing the church. And so sometimes a pastor has to call danger out. And so he uses a club. Now, we've got to be very 
careful here that uh, when, we're, when we're using this club, we don't use that club on the sheep, though, right? Sometimes a pastor can get so frustrated with the people in the church, he'll use the club on the sheep. But what does a shepherd use with the sheep? The staff. Now, that is the typical shepherd's crook that we, we know about. And you don't beat sheep when they do wrong. You gently guide them. You show them the truth. Hey, God's word says this. Hey, God's word says this. You're getting out of line. This is what God's word is. You're calling them to the obedience to the word of God. And there's a crook on the end. So like that little sheep who was stuck in that, <laughs> that little narrow trench, you can pull them up and you can drag them out of places that they themselves have gotten into. Sometimes sheep stumble off cliffs. They get caught in ravines. They get caught in a thicket. And a shepherd has to free them from these, these sins and these things that are holding them back and holding them down. And so that's part of a shepherd's job is to protect the sheep from outside dangers and sometimes from themselves. Now let's look at the last title that a pastor receives, and that is overseer. Look at verses two through three, but we're going to pause just the first couple of words. He says that a pastor, an elder who is an example, who is a pastor who's shepherding the flock is to be doing what? Exercising oversight. Now, over, exercising oversight is two words in English. It's one word in the Greek. It's epi, scopeo. Now, we've learned, looked at the word scopeo before, haven't we? It looks like the word scope, which you put on your hunting rifle to bring down in a, all the many deer that we have in our lovely community. Uh, it's a scope. It's what you're, you're looking out at something. You're looking. But the word epi, the prefix epi, means over. He's overlooking. A pastor's job is to overlook the church. He's to see what's happening within the church to make sure that the church is doing everything that a church is supposed to do. That's what, that's what it means to be an overseer. I want you to picture a submarine captain. You got a submarine captain, and he's the only one that has the scope, right? That Perry scope, and he puts that up. You watch, you've watched submarine movies like I have. He puts it up, and he's looking around, and you see, ah, oh, there's danger on the horizon. There's a destroyer, and he wants to drop depth charges upon us and destroy us. And so, uh, and so he puts up that periscope because he's seen things the rest of the sub hasn't seen. And what does he do then? He starts calling out things because there's people within the sub who all have specialized jobs. And he'll say, you know, Howard, full ahead, left rudder, 30 degrees, mark, or whatever they say. I'm not a sub captain. I've watched movies, though. And so, uh, you know, they'll go over here, and they'll, they'll call out to somebody else, and Fred, flood torpedo bay number two, and launch. And, and so he's making sure he's not doing all the work of the sub, but what's he doing? He's making sure that all the work of the sub is happening. And that's what it means to be an overseer. He's familiar with all that's going on in the church to make sure that we are together individually, each one of us performing a role. We're doing what a church needs to do. That's an overseer, and that's a term that is giving here. The pastor, elder, is to exercise oversight. Now, can that ever be misused or get someone into trouble? Can a pastor ever let this job of oversight go to his head? Oh, absolutely. He sure can. In fact, what does Peter warn the pastor about here? He gives him a warning. He says that a pastor shouldn't be serving under compulsion. Sure, he should not be serving for shameful gain. But what else is he not to do? Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Sometimes pastors can get it in their heads that they are much more important to a church than they really are. Okay? They can start thinking, this is my church. You need to follow my vision. It's my thought, my church, my ideas, my people, my... And it's not. 
This church doesn't belong to the pastor. Who does it belong to? It's not you. Whose church is this? It's Jesus' church. He is the head of this church. But sometimes pastors can get a little too much power, and they will exceed their mandate. The pastor's job is to make sure that the church is functioning the way it's supposed to. But sometimes pastors can get beyond that, and they start trying to micromanage each individual church member. Uh, I saw that in China where there's, there's not a lot of pastoral training, and sometimes these individual pastors will let the power go to their head, and they will try to manage everybody in the church. And they'll say, I've got stories where I know of people who will say, um, you need to quit your job and come work at the church for a fourth of the pay that you were getting, but you have to do it because I'm your pastor, and I said so. Can you imagine if we did that here? Gary, you got to leave whatever you're doing. you got to come work here for me, and we're going to give you $25 a week. How does that sound? doesn't matter what you think. You have to do it because I'm the pastor. And they would do that. They would have people who would say, you know what? You need to leave and move. You're, you're live, you know, uh, Theron, you're living over in Russell. You need to be living over here by the church. So I am requiring you to leave that house, and you need to buy something right next to the church. And so you must do it or you're fired. Okay. Uh, or we start getting into things. Uh, I've seen them where they've, they'll tell you who you can marry. How would you guys like that? You know, oh, you're dating this fine Christian boy, this fine Christian girl. Break it up. You're done. I got someone right here that you need to, you need to marry, and you need to get married. Why? Because I told you so. And so that's exceeding the mandate that God gave them. And so sometimes people can let that power go to their head. By the way, this is why a church in the New Testament had a plurality of elders. There wasn't one elder trying to discern the will of God. It was multiple. You had lay and paid elders, and this group of people came together who were gifted in the areas of service and speaking gifts, and they prayed together, and they looked at the word of God to see what does God want us to do. That, if you want to know, in a nutshell, friends, is church governance in the New Testament because the head of the church is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, he says that he, God, put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. There's only one person who's the head of this church, and that's got to be Jesus. It can't be a pastor. It can't be any one person in the church. It can't be a chairman of the deacons. It can't be just a guy who's been in the church a really long time, and he just kind of tells the church what to do. It can't be just someone who is really rich, and so he gives a lot of money to the church, and he says, well, you better do what I want to do, or you're going to lose a millionaire. I'm the biggest tither in the church. You better do what I ask. Is that how we run the church? Of course it's not. We run the church uh, because God gave us a document, didn't he? I mean, we, it, it's really good and all to say Jesus is the head of this church. Jesus tells this church what to do, but how do we actually come to that conclusion? If only God had given us a document that told us everything that was his will, if only God had told us, given us something that was left behind where Jesus tells us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, if only, right? Well, we obviously we have that book, don't we? And that's why we are people of the book. When we do that, we know that we are following Jesus' will and his intention for the church because we're not following human tradition. We're following the word of God. That's how we know that we are following the will of the head because the head already told us what to do with his property. It's kind of like most of you guys. I hope all of you guys have a last will and testament. You do, I hope. If you don't, get one. Um... But what, what is that? It's a document that says, when I'm not physically present, here is my intention for what I want you to do 
with all of these possessions and belongings, distributed them thus and so. Right? That's what a, t- a will and testament is. Well, it's interesting. We have a last will and, te- and two testaments. Okay? We have Old and New Testament. This is God's testimony of what he wants us to do with what belongs to him and how we are to operate as a church. But it means that we have to choose to be handcuffed to Scripture. We're not going to let society tell us what a church is. We're not going to let church members tell us what a church is. We're going to choose as people to discern what the will of the head is through God's word and through a group of people that we have ordained and set apart for, to serve in the role of overseer. Well, as, a, as an overseer, there's one more thing a pastor does. He, doesn't, he makes sure that everybody is involved in the ministry as well, okay? Because this isn't just a pastor's church. It's not just his ministry. Old, old ways of thinking with the church were this. We hire a pastor. He does the ministry. You ever, been, you ever had that kind of thought? We're the church. We hire a pastor to do the ministry for us. Is that the New Testament example of the church? Hint, it's not. It's not. The work of the ministry is the birthright of every believer. Friends, to be involved in the ministry of God is the greatest calling anybody can ever have. To know that your life is not just, let's say you work at Walmart, it's not just stacking and restocking Cheerios and cornflakes on the shelf, and then you go home and try to eke out as much fun as you can on the weekend before you have to go back to this job that you hate. No, no matter who signs your paycheck, the purpose of every believer is ministry. The thing that will keep you from having a midlife crisis, what is the purpose of my life? Is it vanity, vanity, all is vanity? The thing that will keep you from going out and buying a Ferrari and unbuttoning your shirt down to your navel and buying gold chains, you know? You know, you get to a point in your life, you're like, what's the purpose of this life? My life doesn't have any meaning. I may as well at least have some fun and try to look good doing it. And so we do that. And, and we get this midlife crisis. Why? Because we're not involved in ministry. Because for too long, pastors have hoarded all of that to themselves. And the churches can't grow very well either. If you're waiting on one, two, or three guys to do all the work of the ministry, we're never going to grow. Every member is a minister. By the way, did you know that's where the ter- church member comes from? comes from pa- passages like Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. talks about members. The term member means a body part. You're a member of this church. It means you are a functioning role. You got somebody over here, he's a hand. This guy's a foot. This guy's a leg. This person's a nose. That guy's a spleen. Don't ask me which one's the spleen, okay? But, you know, one, you guys all have a body part that you are in this church. You function. And so you're a member of this body, and we are all like on a submarine. There's nobody on a submarine who, who takes a submarine as a form of passage. There's no passengers on a submarine, are there? You ever been in one? Uh, I've been one in uh, Mobile, Alabama. You go there and see the battleship, and they've got a submarine. You go in there, and it's tiny, and it's crowded. And most of the time, people do several different jobs. This guy who's flooding the torpedoes is also the cook. So there's nobody who just gets on a submarine and says, I'm just going to sit in my bunk, you know, and uh, play video games until we get to the other side. Everybody does a job. And it's the same thing in a church. There's no member in the church who just kind of sits and comes and absorbs. We all work together like a submarine because we have a mission that we've been sent by God to do. And so an overseer makes sure everybody's equipped to do the ministry. You say, Pastor Heath, you've got any scripture to back that up? I sure do. 
Uh, I always do. Don't ask that question. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Why do we have church leaders? What is their primary role? It says God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Why? To equip who for the work of the ministry? Equip the saints. Pause. Who's the saints? Don't say St. Nicholas or something like that. A saint is anybody who has been sanctified. It's the noun of sanctified. A saint is anybody who is a child of God. You may not feel like it, but you are a saint. That's why Paul, when he writes in the New Testament, he doesn't write to the sinners at Colossae, I write. He writes to the saints, to the saints at Rome, to the saints at Corinth. A saint is just a believer. Who does the work of the ministry? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does ministry? We all do ministry. You may not do it full-time like I do, but your, your inheritance of God, your birthright, is to be part of God's eternal work that elevates and lifts up your life into something significant and something meaningful to know that at the end of your life, you can look back and say, I served God in this capacity in my life. God used me to build up, equip, and strengthen the church and to lead people to faith and to disciple them in D groups and other things. Your life matters. But if you don't have Christ, you're not going to feel like that. You've got to be intimately united with him in salvation and intimately united in his church as a member of the church. And so a pastor doesn't just do the work of the ministry. He equips the saints for the work of the ministry, just like Jesus equipped the apostles, just like Paul equipped Timothy, Titus, and others. Okay? And so we equip the saints at the work, uh, to do the work of the ministry through the unity funnel. I'm just going to quickly throw this up here and we'll be done. I love this picture, by the way. Thank you, Brad, very much. Uh, Brad has got a gift for making these little graphics and things. This is a picture of the unity funnel. How does a person come into big church, which is the top there, and become a more mature, devoted follower of Christ? We go from big church to community groups. That, they meet on Sunday morning. Eventually, we'll launch some home groups that do the same thing. So if you're one of those who's out there and you're watching this live stream because you work on Sunday mornings and you can't get to Sunday school, you can join one of our community groups that meets in a home. And you can get into smaller groups for fellowship and intimate relationships and friendships. From there, we have D groups where you go one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three, and you are mentored in the faith. We, we walk side-by-side with you. We don't just tell you to read the Bible. We show you how to study. We don't just tell you to pray. We show you how to pray. We don't tell you live a holy life. We show you here's how you can live a victorious Christian life and have victory over sin. We walk that path with you. So this is a pastor's job description. What is he? He's three things. He's an elder. He's an example to the flock, and we have several of them in a church. In the New Testament, they had paid and unpaid elders. A pastor is also a pastor. He's a shepherd. He feeds and protects the flock. He's also an overseer, somebody who makes sure that the church is, do, is, is getting done the task that Jesus has given the church to do, and then he equips the individual saints to do the work of the ministry so that we can do this together. What is a pastor's job description? It's 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's go ahead and close this morning in prayer. Father, we're grateful for this church body. God, I'm so thankful for each individual member, and even those who are simply attending right now, trying to see if this is the church family that they're to be a member of and a part of. Lord, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to take the word of God and to preach it and to teach it and to understand and to know what is the will of God in our life and in the church. Father, it's a humbling task to be able to to take the word and to do that with people. 
it's an even more humbling task, God, to uh, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to help them grow and to mature and to, to disciple them and to watch them become fully functioning Christians, not just attenders, but people who are active in service and ministry of the church, giving and worshiping and loving and performing their spiritual gift that you have given them. God, I pray that as a church, we will not be have this idea that we'll be great because of one or two people in this church that make it great. This church will be great because the head is great. Jesus Christ is lifted up. And that each individual member of the church knows their place, knows their part, and the role that they are called to fulfill. God, I pray each for each one of us that we would fulfill that role. And God, I pray if there's anybody here who does not know for certain that they are actually a member of the body of Christ, that they are truly saved. God, that you would convict their heart of, of sin, their need for a Savior who died in their place. God, that by faith they would be united to you as they put their trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross as he died and bled for them, as he died in their place, as he was buried and rose again on the third day, God, that they might have his life. Lord, uh, we love you. We're grateful that we can be in this church family together. Pray that you would just draw our hearts together to work in tandem with one another with the kind of organization that we see in a submarine or the military. Uh, Lord, send us forth from this place to fulfill the great commission in making disciples. Together, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.